get ready. I'm like holding on my desk because I'm like, get ready. We're gonna we're gonna debunk some serious bat myths here. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always to kick off season three of this here podcast, that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. Can you believe we're in season three? We're podcasters now, Kaylee. Indeed I can, because I have edited both of the previous seasons. So I believe that we're here. I love that we're here. How are you feeling about this season three commencing? Well, I think like now that we've actually reached, you know, this this plateau if you want to call it you know season three like it feels like we are now in something like you know we have we should be learning something we should be you know this is now the third act you know something new is going to happen we're going to have some revelations i'm excited to find out what they are because i don't know what they are yet (laughs) well you know what we are going to start strong for season three and we're going to set ourselves up for tons of revelations because today we are talking with Dr. Silita Guy. And Dr. Guy is an ecologist, data scientist, and science communicator who studies bats. And her first children's book, Chasing Bats and Tracking Rats, Urban Ecology, Community Science, and How We Share Our Cities, comes out this fall. Hi, Salita. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are both y'all? We're doing pretty good, I think. Michael, how are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm doing great. I'm super stoked to learn about uh, the flying creatures, which I did see some in my camping trip that I was just on uh, last week. So excited to learn more. I always get so excited when I see bats in the wild. I remember three summers ago, I was hiking on the West Coast Trail and I was so excited because there was a species of bat that lives in BC. Then their echolocation calls are low enough that you can hear them. And I Went all trip without seeing them. And the last night, I'm kind of standing out looking over the ocean on the West Coast Trail. And this one lone little bat flies across the water. And I'm like, I wonder if it's a spotted bat. And then I hear its call. And I like freaked out. The entire campsite is like, what's going on? And I'm like, there's a bat and it's a spotted bat. And I've always wanted to see one. Um, so yes, I'm always down with people seeing bats in the wild. Now, that's very exciting. So just recently, I was um, out listening for bats at a local spot. We've been doing a bat study and we had one of those little echolocator sound, uh, sound meter. Acoustic detectors, as we like to call them. Acoustic detectors. It was excellent. And is that what you had to listen to this spotted bat to know that it was a spotted bat? No. So the, well, so I hypothesize it was a spotted bat. Spotted bats are kind of special in that they, they echolocate at high frequencies, very similar to other species of bats that echolocate. Um, but some of their calls do come into uh, the human range. So they echolocate at a slightly lower frequency sometimes. And it's a very distinct call. And I kind of had prepared myself by listening to that ahead of time. And so that lower frequency is is what I was you know hearing and picking up on and getting excited about. And maybe it was all in my head. Maybe I was just tired from like four days straight of hiking. <laughs> I don't care. I choose to believe that it was a spotted bat and it was like the best day of my trip. It was undoubtedly a spotted bat. And I love so much that you prepared to go out (laughs) to hear this by listening to the call (laughs) in advance. That's like my whole birding experience because I'm not very good at actually physically seeing birds. But the calls is something that I try to listen to in the city. And like speaking of cities, you are an urban ecologist. You do urban ecology. Can you tell us a little bit about what urban ecology is? Yeah, I mean, urban ecology is really interesting, right? When we think of scientists who study nature of, you know, ecologists like myself or, you know, like yourself, Dr. Byers, right? With your your rodents. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> we often think of people going out into like the wilderness to study wildlife in their natural habitat, but we forget, you know, over half of the world's population lives in a city. You know, cities take up a, a, a substantial part of our land area and they're not devoid of nature, right? And so there's all this nature sitting here. And so urban ecology is the study of, of the nature that lives and thrives and sometimes doesn't thrive uh, alongside humans in our cities, in our, our sprawling urban landscapes, um, kind of at that urban to, to farmland or rural divide, you know, really broad topic, but essentially study of nature lives alongside humans in cities. I'd really love to know how you became interested in urban ecology, because for me, it was like coming to study rats was really that I was interested in understanding how humans interface with wildlife and what the consequences are for health. And cities, because of what you just said, are a great place to study that. And rats are a great study organism. So how did you become interested in urban ecology work? Yeah, so I feel like very much like rats, kind of studying bats lends itself to to working at a human wildlife interface because lots of bats uh, live in cities and they're particularly good, uh, what we would call pests. I don't like to think of them as pests; I, they're just trying to you know live their best life and make a home. Uh, but they do often get into people's houses, and so a lot of the time they think of them um, as pests and are trying to get them out. That being said, I didn't come to this like world of urban ecology by choice. It was actually kind of by happenstance. It was in my PhD and I really wanted to do a lot of like, you know, theoretical work and, um, you know, a lot of machine learning, a lot of coding, a lot of working with other people's data. And one of my advisors at the time was like, he was like, well, I think that's bullshit. If you want to study bats, you know, no person in my lab will study bats with at least, you know, not like you need to hold a bat. You need to hold it. You need to understand them. You need to like work with them in the wild. And so he paired me up with a postdoc and she developed all these questions around how urban bats, you know, used parks and how we could um, use parks as a way to study their social structure. And, you know, as science often goes, that project didn't work out. And so we kind of pivoted it and we turned it into this more fundamental, you know, how do, how do bats in a city, you know, use this big, beautiful park or this big piece of green space? And, you know, are they using green spaces in the way that we think that they should be using green spaces? Um, and so... You know, one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, I'm spending two summers studying bats uh, in Toronto's High Park. Well, that's the dream. You just accidentally come to being able to go out and wrangle bats. Right? Well, I mean, it's the dream I didn't know I had. Yeah. (laughs) So, Salida, I'm curious because you talk about bats in cities, and when we talk about urban ecology and thinking of bats that live in cities. But like I saw, I saw some bats out there, you know, in the deep of the woods kind of thing. So when you're studying bats that live in the cities, are you just specifically studying that that particular type of species or are they connected? Are the bats that live in like the deep forest like connected to the ones that live in the cities? I mean, that's a that's a great question. So we were really focused on this, this urban population of bats that resided in this one particular public park. So we were studying the big brown, focused on, on one type of species of bat. But we also went out and pulled data from across North America from other researchers who study bats in their native range. Now, big brown bats are a little funny in that they are almost so good at living alongside humans that um, we very rarely find them like out in the wild in the middle of nowhere. They're definitely there and they do use that space. But if there is a building available, they will be in that building because it's nice, warm and and dry. Um, And so we we actually found data from other researchers across North America to kind of compare, you know, how do things like body condition, how do uh, their weight, their size, how many babies they're having, how does that vary across, you know, this like heavily urbanized landscape to kind of more natural spaces. And that being said, I mean, 
there's also a connection in that like the species of bats that we study, while they're kind of in the city for part of the year, they hibernate, well, we're not sure where they hibernate, but they likely hibernate outside the city, kind of off in the forest, out in escarpment regions, because they have very specific requirements for hibernating. They like caves of a specific temperature and a specific humidity. And so they actually will leave the city. All of our bats would disappear, you know, come September, we weren't catching anything because they were off um, ready to have their fall swarming season, getting ready to move into their caves for hibernation. So Selena, could you get into like how you actually work with the bats? Like I know Kaylee gets in there, she's crawling around in the alleys of our city. You know, when you're working with bats, are you also like getting into attics? Are you, you know, scaling trees? Like how exactly are you working with bats? Yeah, so we did most of our catching using mist nets, which you are like these super fine fishing-like nets, and we would set them up between two poles at night out in open spaces where we know bats would probably be feeding and out flying. So we were mostly working with them in open spaces. I will tell you, I much rather would have gone into an attic and pulled them like off of the walls because it would have been so much faster, so much easier. There were lots of nights where we would sit in the dark, set up like these like massive nets and then be like, oh, well, I guess we caught another moth. (laughs) Take that out for four hours and sit and twiddle my thumbs for the rest of the night, uh, which is is no fun. Uh, but when you do catch them, it, it is really exciting. And so on some of those bats that we caught out in the park while they were out flying, feeding, um, you know, doing their, their bat thing, uh, we would put these tiny little radio transmitters on them. These radio transmitters, we can follow the signal in the landscape. And we would track them during the day to figure out where they'd gone to sleep or where they were roosting. And so we were fortunate enough to find a very large roost in the chimney of an old house. And so my partner and I, Dr. Krista Patrickwin, she actually got up on the roof and we had this makeshift contraption called a roost trap, which she hung over the entrance uh, to the roost. And so as the bats you know, would exit at the night, they kind of hit this trap and, and fall into a nice, beautiful pillowcase at the end. Um, and so that was another way that we caught them. Uh, we never actually had to get into a building, but that's another common way that scientists do it, right? You go into a cave, you go into a building, and you just kind of pull them off the walls with a gloved hand. What does a big roost look like? Like I've been going into some roost areas lately and I don't really have a good sense. I mean, I know one of them's much bigger than the others, but what would you consider to be a large roost? So, I mean, this roost had, as we estimate, and when I say we, I mean uh, my our very uh, lovely and talented research assistant, Joshua Hines, uh, who stood underneath that roost several nights in a row and counted how many bats he saw emerge. Bless. I know, right? Gotta, gotta give it to those research assistants. We estimate it to be 75 to 80 individuals, which... To me, that's a a substantial roost. I mean, I have limited experience with bats in the field, but it it can vary for species across the world, right? There are roosts of some free-tailed bats that can be millions of individuals, like some of the densest mammalian aggregations on this planet. But then we also have some species of bats which are are solitary. So for most of the year, they hang out by themselves. And so there you have a roost of, of one, right? And for some of our big browns, especially the males, we would find, well, we had a much harder time finding those roosts for those males. But when we did find them, it was one, maybe two coming out of that one structure versus this colony with females and their pups where it's like 75 individuals. Very cool. Yeah. What a what a range. I mean, they're an incredibly diverse group of mammals. So Right. I, I mean, over 1,400 species. They're the second most diverse our species-rich group of mammals. They live everywhere except the high Arctic and the Antarctic. And so like with that much geography covered, that many species, there's just, I, it just, I'm thinking about it. And I know that other people can't see what I see in my head, but it's just such an amazing amount of diversity. It just like, it, it's exciting. It just, I, 
I love little guys. Little guys, little guys, little little things. <laughs> so fourteen hundred different species of bats. So I, I'm curious about how similar they all are and how different they all are because there's the preconceived notion that that you're as blind as a bat. Like is is that true or are bats actually blind? You know, like what are some of like the those those things that we do know about bats and some of like the mysteries of bats that we don't know? Oh, get ready. I'm like holding on my desk because I'm like, get ready. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna debunk some serious bat myths here. Yeah. I cannot wait. So let's let's so there there definitely is similarity between species, right? Um I won't lie, here in North America, I catch a lot of bats and I'm like, huh, small brown bat. But not a little brown, maybe an eastern myotis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, you have a tiny projection at the back of your foot. You're a small foot, not a, a it like many of these species do look fairly similar. They have um, you know, similar kind of what I'm gonna call an ecological niche or kind of similar overlap in, in how they live their lives. But that being said, there there can be a lot of diversity and there's a lot of difference in the group, especially as we get down into like the tropical species. There's some wild variations there in like physical form and function. And so, you know, coming back to this idea, like, are bats blind, right? It's this old, like, oh, you're blind as a bat. Uh, not true, right? I think that that old adage comes from the fact that a lot of species of bats echolocate, right? They're using these high-frequency sounds to navigate their nocturnal environments. But the bats that echolocate can still see. Now, I say that, like, with a little asterisk because there are some species of, of what I call, or not what I call, what are my favorite species, the rhinolophids or the horseshoe bats, They've got these like very large nose leaves. So these like huge folds of skin on their face. And like they've got these tiny little eyes tucked behind these folds of skin. They can see, but probably like not that well, right? <laughs> but then you have our, our pteropodids or our, our flying foxes. Um, and these are species of bats that have these like large, brilliant, like stunning eyes. And they actually don't have the ability to echolocate. They've never had it. And these species rely only on their eyesight and their sense of smell to get around in the dark. And so there's a lot of, you know, differences in how bats navigate, how they find their food, you know, what they eat, right? A lot eat insects, some eat meat, some uh, feed on nectar, some feed on fruit. Like there's a huge diversity in their diets as well. Yeah, it's super awesome. And some are navigating caves, some are not, right? They're like perched up in perched up in trees, like so much variety. Yeah, uh, my favorite is, uh, I always forget its, its name, but there's one species of bat that is known to like excavate termite mounds. So sometimes <sighs> active, often abandoned, they'll like find a little hole, dig it out a bit more, and they'll roost up inside that termite mound. So they also can, you know, make their own structures. There are tent roosting species of bats, and they'll find these large leaves in the tropics. They'll chew along the kind of centerpiece of the leaf. So it folds over, makes a little tent, and then they'll they'll roost up inside that tent for a couple nights. And once it starts to wilt, they'll move on to the the next leaf that they can find. That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) So adorable. The most adorable. Are there any big questions that you're still really excited about when it comes to bats? I feel like with all that diversity, we must still be discovering things about them. Yeah. I mean, we're still discovering new species, right? They're over 1,400. The last time I checked, it won't lie, it has been a while. It was 1,425 different species. And so to me, that's really exciting that we're still discovering new species. And I think the piece that we often, well, at least I often don't think about, or or maybe I forget, is that just because we found a new species doesn't mean that we know things about it, right? And so there's all this like yeah. fundamental natural history, like what does it eat? Where does it live? What does it need to survive? How does it like live its life? So many open questions about so many species of bats like that. And 
as you can imagine, that information is really important for their conservation and their protection. And so I just think there's so much awesome natural history work being done and, and to be done. I also get really excited about um, the work that is done around their social systems, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of species have the same social dynamic that humans have, right? They get together in groups. They have what I, I'm going to call friends. They're not, not quite in, in the, but they get together in groups. They'll have some associations with some individuals and then they'll they'll go away. They'll associate with under, other individuals. They'll come back together. They'll do things like share food and they've shown that they can transmit information. They can, you know, one individual can teach another individual of the same species and of different species information to access food and other resources in their environment. So I think we have a lot to learn about their sociality and their social dynamics. Uh, I never want to stop talking about bats, but I would also like to talk a little bit about another aspect of your work. Because you mentioned, you know, you, you got into bats because you were interested in this aspect of data science and machine learning and, and dealing with data. And so I'm really curious about how that work with bats and that PhD work intersects with the work you're doing now as a data scientist. Yeah. So I'm going I'm to take that question like all the way back to before I started my PhD. I was in my undergrad and I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do with my life? And I knew that I, I really like doing research. I really like studying, you know, like wildlife and ecology, but as I kind of thought about careers in ecology that I knew of at the time, which I, I won't lie, I didn't know very much. I was like, I don't really see myself doing something like this forever. And so my goal was really to acquire a set of skills that I could transfer. And so when I decided like, yes, I'm going to study bats, I'm like, I want to study bats with like a heavy math component. And I want to use methods that rely on things like machine learning and statistics and leverage big data where I get to learn how to code and and maybe I get to do some like, you know, a heavy mathematical modeling. And so I think the thing that helped me transition into data science were a lot of the methods that I used in my PhD, the statistical analysis. I also did a chapter where I was using machine learning to predict which species of bats were likely to be undetected carriers of diseases that could jump into humans, right? We're kind of currently in the mm-hmm. throes of, of, of COVID-19. Oh, are we? Are, <laughs> why, why are we all at home talking remotely? But right, so I was really focused on on these zoonotic viruses coming and emerging from bats. And so I applied machine learning as, as an approach to try to help us uh, develop more targeted surveillance. It was very hard for me to say like, okay, I'm going to take a break from ecology and see if I can apply these skills somewhere else. But I will say it has been incredibly rewarding because I realized at the end of the day, you know, data is what gets me excited. If you give me an interesting question, it's a puzzle. And, that, and that's how I think about data, right? It's it's a puzzle. You, you know, good data collection is one thing, but if you're kind of given just this mass of data, which a lot of businesses have from their consumers, from, you know, people that they're trying to help give a service to, cities trying to plan, like there are these masses of data that have stories in them if analyzed properly and appropriately. And so to me, it's a super fun challenge. And working in industry has just been so great because I've taken some of those methods I've applied in my PhD and I've just like really gotten to accelerate my skill set. I've gotten to learn a lot more. I mean, it's funny. I would talk about like how I looked at big data. The audience can't see, but I'm using air quotes, big data in my PhD. And it's like a tiny fraction of, of what I use today at my job. And so it's just a completely different scale, a completely different set of questions, but it's still, I still get to be a scientist, right? I still get to ask questions. I get to, you know, come up with the solutions to problems. And the thing that I, I think I was really missing in my 
grad school and in my PhD was I get to build. I work with software engineers, I work with machine learning engineers, and we build a system that people in the business use. And so having that ownership and that kind of ability to architect and create is has been really, really exciting. So Salida, you have just written your first children's book. It hasn't come out yet. You can pre-order it. We're going to get into that. We're going to give away the book at the end of the episode on social media. But uh, tell us about this book. What inspired you to write it? Yeah. So I, I mean, I feel like uh, as many budding science communicators, which uh, I was during grad school, I was like, huh, I really like the science thing. I want more people like the science thing. I would really love to write a kid's book about it. But it's really hard to like, where you start? Like, how do you do that? And so I was very fortunate in that, um, you know, kind of in, in year three of my PhD, I, I participated in this podcast called The Story Collider. Um, you know, some of your audience may or may not be familiar where I got up on stage and told one of my favorite stories from the field. You know, I got a lot of commendation and a lot of people enjoyed my story and the way that I tell stories about science. And uh, someone passed my name along to the publishers at Anik Press, uh, or one of the editors at Anik Press. And Anik was very much in need of people to write science stories. And they really wanted to have you know, books about science, nonfiction books about science for kids written by scientists themselves. And so we got together, we pitched a couple ideas, I proposed a book, and we, we ended up taking it in this totally different direction, right? Of course, the first book I proposed to them was all about bats because, oh my God, bats, right? <laughs> um, but it was, it, it, it was really focused on not so much on hear cool facts about bats, which definitely exist in kids' books. It was more focused on, you know, here's how we scientists study bats in the urban landscape. And, you know, the editors and, and the rest of the folks at Inic, as they're reading this proposal, they're like, yeah, this is really cool, but like, you can't be the only pe person who studies stuff in cities, right? Like there are more people like to us, this is what's really exciting. We want more of this. And so I went off and I rejigged this proposal and I did a little more research and I realized that there was this kind of like gap in, in like kids don't think about nature in their cities. A lot of people, a lot of adults don't think about nature in their cities. And I was like, this is the book that I want to write. I want, I want children and parents and you know people without kids who just happen to see it on the shelves and they're like huh urban ecology i want people to to care about their urban nature enough to you know be invested in it to learn its names and to notice it and so for me writing this book is is one of the ways that i hope to accomplish that goal yeah so we should say the book's entitled chasing bats and tracking rats kaylee's already uh, pre-ordered a bunch of them and you can too out there colon urban ecology, community science, and how we share our cities. What are some of the stories that kids uh, can read about in this book? Yeah, so kids will get to hear from eight different scientists from across North America. I'm one. I'm talking about, you know, my most dangerous night in the field where somebody almost fell off a roof. We had a run-in with the police, all while studying bats. Uh, you'll also get to hear about, you know, Dr. Byers herself. What? Who knew, Kaylee? Who knew? <laughs> Who would Reading all about urban, uh, urban rat trapping, uh, and how how that goes down. We'll hear about Harold, uh, the first rat Kaylee ever caught, and uh, his maybe sneaky, evasive maneuvers. Uh, but we also have a scientist who studies urban trees using a bicycle to collect information on them. So we'll hear about some really innovative ways about the way that scientists collect data in the city. There's a researcher who studies coyotes, and I've got you know a story about him in there. There are bears. There's one woman who uh, was studying bears in Northern Ontario. And again, for a lot of people, when we think of cities, we think of places like Toronto, Vancouver, Los Angeles, New York. 
Um, but we also have a researcher from Sudbury who was there at the time studying uh, black bears and how that is a very large type of wildlife that most people don't think about being in a city environment, but they live in a city. So we've got a little bit of something for everyone. We also have uh, one scientist who studies invertebrates in the middle of the winter in Toronto lakes and streams, which is uh, pretty intense. Yeah. You'll hear about a story from her where she uh, almost falls in uh, to a raging river. So there's lots of tension and drama, but also so much science, which is the most important part. Science... All the time. And you should also mention that it's uh, illustrated as well yes. by uh, Cornelia Lee. So it's got some really some really cool illustrations. The cover looks amazing. And I will say, I just want to give a shout out to Cornelia's work. Is like, It's just so stunning. It's so brilliant. And so when I heard that she would be the one illustrating this book, it just... It was amazing. She brings the scientist stories in a way to life in a way that like I could never write them. And so each chapter has a full page illustration of each scientist in there. I'm going to say their natural habitat with their study organism. And they're just like, I can't wait. I'm, we're so close to, to being able to share some of this art, you know, on Twitter and through some of the book readings that I'm about to do. Uh, but she also illustrates a lot of the scientific equipment that each scientist is using. And so for me, that was really exciting because I feel like a lot of children's STEM books are really good at you know, giving the endpoints of knowledge. So like, here's all the stuff we know about the way the world works. But we don't always do a really great job as communicators, you know, helping people understand how scientists figure these things out. And I think I'm really excited about this book because it takes people through the process. It shows them some of the tools that scientists use. Uh, and to me, that's a that's a really exciting piece of that learning as well. Hold up. Are you saying that there's a picture of Kaylee uh, in this book? Yes. And in fact, if you take a look at the cover, what? Kaylee is on the cover with Harold in hand. And most importantly, the rat van forever will live on the front of a book. The first time I saw that cover, I actually cried. <laughs> I had so many emotions. It was like this little snippet of this life that I have lived and this work that I have done within the context of so many other stories. You have so many different scientists in here. They work on different systems, but you've also chosen to tell a diversity of stories. So how did you pick like what stories to tell? Because of course, one scientist doesn't just have one story either, right? There are many stories as part of field work. Yeah, it was really, it was first, it was really hard. Um, it was hard to narrow it down to a handful of scientists to include um, so much so that I have like kind of these spotlights on other scientists across the world being like, shout out to this person and this person and this person, because there's just so many of you and your work is also cool. <laughs> and so as I was choosing kind of the the main feature scientists, really focusing on trying to highlight diversity in all its forms, so in, in types of study organisms, so not just focusing on mammals and birds, which everybody loves, but don't worry, there are mammals and birds. Um, <laughs> really focusing on uh, species that are perceived as pests to kind of shine them in this more positive light and help people understand that, yeah, sometimes it sucks when the trash pandas tip over your, your garbage can, but they're really important for our ecosystems. And so like, this is part of city living. I also though tried to um, include researchers who whose perspectives I think go beyond what we consider to fall within, let's say the purview of Western science. So one of the researchers in the book is indigenous and she talks about the way that she combines, um, you know, her traditional teachings that she's learned as part of um, her upbringing with the work that she does as a scientist. We also have two scientists in the book who talk about, you know, how their work 
and how, you know, the distribution of species in cities, how that has been influenced by racist practices like redlining, right? Like Mm -hmm. literally drawing red boxes around to say, hey, if you're a person of color, if you're black, you're brown, you can live here, but nowhere else. And those those practices have shaped communities and they've shaped who has access to communities. And that's like, that's simply not right. And it's, it's, it's not fair. And that bias manifests in many ways, right? I also chose to include folks who use community data. So what is traditionally known as citizen science, although this is like a name that I'm glad that we're moving away for referring to it as community science to, to kind of highlight for folks that, you know, you don't have to get a PhD to be a scientist. You don't have to have an advanced degree and that, you know, protection and ownership over our communities and our local nature is something that we can all have the power to do. We can all contribute to that data collection. We can all ask our own questions and and then go out and pair with, with scientists to collect that data or collect it on our own as part of our community. And so I really want people who read this book to to recognize how, you know, humans and wildlife are not separate, especially in cities, and but also feel that they are empowered to learn about that and, and, and change where they see and where they don't see nature in their cities. I think this is why I'm so excited about this book. In science, we often see it as something that is independent of your identity, right? It's this objective thing that you do. It is unbiased. And Science is such a part of your identity. It's how you create your questions. It's how you engage with the science. It's who you involve in the science as well. And that's what I love so much about this book is it tells you the science and it tells you the process of science and it integrates identity and the importance of it. And I think that I'm just really excited for kiddos and non-kiddos because I'll be giving this book to many non-kiddos, you included, Michael, (laughs) to engage with that. (laughs) One last question, Sayleena. What do you call a collection of bats? A colony. A colony. Do you know what you call a collection of nerds? No. Nerdery? Nerdery? The nerd herd. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? Oh. We evolve? Does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon the fastest thing on earth? Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get on the nerd herd, we post questions on our social media at NerdNightYVR, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our first one comes in from Sandra, who asks, are bat scientists pissed off? I used, uh, I think, uh, used pissed off um, as it was written. Pissed off with the stigmatization with Dracula or perhaps COVID. Yeah. All the time. The like that that <laughs> misconceptions and myths that like persist can be it's just you know when you really love someone and then like someone comes up to you and they just start shit talking it in front of you. Like that's like that's just I feel it deep in my soul when the people are like, Oh, bats are bad because they get stuck in your hair. No, they don't. Like, oh, they're so bad because they suck blood. Well, actually, only three species are completely hematophagous. And it's this really, really unique like his- history. And actually, it's super cool if you think about the fact that they can get all of their nutrients only from blood. But I will, I will say, so the association between bats and COVID, I mean, I find that one frustrating to combat in general. You know, during my PhD, I studied bats as carriers of, of sometimes species jumping viruses. And they, they get a really bad rep when in reality, lots of other mammals lots of birds, lots of our farm and domestic animals are capable of sharing infectious diseases with us. And so it's it's not just bats. And so really vilifying them as kind of the primary source, I don't think helps the problem because it often leads to these counterintuitive actions where people go into roosts and, and try to eliminate them. At the same time, I don't want to downplay the 
the significance and, and the burden of, of bat-borne diseases. I mean, in South America, uh, you know, rabies from vampire bats, it costs us non-trivial amounts in, in livestock and in treating humans who are, are potentially bitten by bats. But, you know, the way that I view this problem is we are infringing on the natural habitat of these animals. We need to do our best at kind of these these places where we're coming into conflict to really use sound reasoning to promote like the existence of these bats and their healthy existence, but also to minimize our impact on the landscape to make these transmission events less likely. Now, I want to say, I don't actually think I'm pissed off about the association with Dracula because I think that's a really cool like cultural yeah. association because when you look at like old vampire legends, there's this like component of transforming into a into a bat is not something that you see. That was actually an addition uh, by Bram Stoker when he wrote Dracula. And it's kind of since been co-opted into many different uh, vampire legends and, and myths. And so to me, that that's kind of actually a really cool and interesting con- connection. I also really like like old, maybe bad, maybe really good horror, however you want to spin it. And like, I'm a sucker for Van Helsing. Jackman Van Helsing, one of my favorite movies of all time. And the brand new Castlevania show that's on Netflix too, uh, three seasons, amazing if you haven't seen it. Uh, I played the video game a lot when I was a kid, but the animation, very cool. Great. I'll I'll put that on our watch list. Well, and I like that you highlighted something in there too about the bats as carriers for disease and then our interest in killing them because that's something that I deal with with rats all the time. It's like, just kill all the rats because they're they're disease causing. And there are studies in rats that we've done and there are studies in bats that show that if you go in and you just start killing bats, it actually increases disease in people in some cases because yeah. you disrupt them, right? Yeah. Again, you're just disrupting them some more. And you're also stressing them, right? And we've worked to show that when we stress out animals, they have a weakened immune response. So it makes it more likely that if they are carrying a latent infection, it can kind of emerge with resurgence and it's more likely that it be transmitted. It's more likely that they infect another individual in the colony. And so these kind of like the thing that we think is going to fix the problem has like these knock on consequences that can actually make it much worse. Yeah, totally. So let's maybe move away from this like <laughs> super culling mentality. Second question. We have one more question from the nerd herd. This one's from Kyle. And Kyle asks, mm-hmm. did bats always have echolocation? Okay. So this is such an interesting question. And I actually had to read up on it uh, before coming to talk to both of you because I feel like throughout my PhD, I heard so many different, like it changed. It changed with kind of each piece of information that was added. So there are kind of two hypotheses out there that, you know, there was this kind of ancestral bat species of bat, you know, from which all bats are are, are progenitors. And the thought was, okay, this kind of ancestral species evolved the ability to echolocate. And then our, our pteropodids, our species of bats that don't echolocate, lost it at some point. So that's kind of one line of thinking. The other line of thinking is that no, when bats kind of first started, they didn't have this ability. And then as they kind of evolved and, and diverged, you know, some of the groups independently evolved the ability to echolocate. And these uh, pteropodids just, they never had it. They actually had the ancestral form. And so uh, kind of the latest paper on all of this suggests that it is that second hypothesis, that the groups that can echolocate evolved it independently. And the pteropodids, they actually match that kind of ancestral form uh, and just have not having that ability to echolocate was kind of that first piece. So I think to answer the question, no, they've not always had the ability. Some of them gained it at a later time. Sweet. Um, should we nerd out some more? Oh, yes, please. What you nerding about? 
If you want to get in on the nerd outs, you can tweet at us. You can Instagram us. You can Facebook us at Nerd Night YVR on all of those platforms. Our first one comes in from Aaron, who is nerding out about volcanoes. Say, so, do bats congregate around volcanoes or do they avoid those uh, types of hot places? Bats and volcanoes. You, you guys are, y'all really put me on the spot here, eh? <laughs> I mean, they they live. They both volcanoes and bats found in tropical <laughs> equatorial regions. Um, one spews fire and brimstone. As far as I know, Sweet. there are no species of bats that breathe fire. <laughs> although I think it would be really rad if they did. It's a tenuous connection at best, but it is a connection. Well, wonderful. Well, Silita, I'm really curious to learn about what you are nerding out about. Yes. So. Cicadas. I'm going to talk about cicadas, but there's like a little bit of a backstory here. So my partner has a uh, three, almost four-year-old son, and he is obsessed with insects, right? Like most kids, they go through that dinosaur phase. He was like, dinosaurs, they're extinct. Give me the insects. And we've recently been very fortunate to to move to a house here in Toronto. It has a wonderful yard. And so he's been digging up all sorts of things. His favorite thing are earthworms. But while we were kind of cleaning out weeds in the early spring, a couple times we unearthed these cicada larvae, right? So still underground in this tiny little burrow, feeding on the uh, the fluids from tree roots. Uh, and so we buried them. And so he's kind of been waiting all spring and all summer to see one of these things, right? We showed him pictures, but he's kind of like not really registering. He's like, okay, you're telling me this thing is going to become this other thing. And so now, you know, here in Ontario, um, the dog day cicada are kind of the species that we have here. Um, they are starting, those larvae are starting to crawl up, or I should say those nymphs, I, nymphs, I believe. This is a learning process for me. I know I studied mammals. I know nothing about insects. Uh, these nymphs are kind of now emerging from the ground. They're digging out. They're crawling up trees, and they're undergoing their final molt, where they emerge as the adult with those wings. The males then quickly go off to mate as quickly as they can. And then they'll die. And then the females will, will hang around for a little bit longer, enough time to to lay their eggs, which I learned that they lay their eggs in the tree canopy. And then the eggs will uh, hatch and kind of fall down. Right. And those larvae will like bury into the ground, find a tree root where they'll go through this process of developing again. Um, I also think those cicadas, so this is kind of our regular species that we have here in Ontario, but cicadas have been in the news very recently because all across the eastern North America primarily in the United States, we had the emergence of brood X, right? This periodic 17 years spent developing and then like emerges in this huge like flurry of cicadas. They recently underwent their emergence, which I think is pretty, pretty cool. So I'm still nerding out about cicadas because I will confess, like he asks a lot of really good questions and I'm like, that's buddy, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know what they eat. I mean, I think they eat leaves, and I was like, "Oh crap! They they don't eat leaves. They feed on like sap from tree roots." And like, what? Mind blown. He's I didn't like, know that. "What are these appendages?" He's like, "What is he? He's very fascinated with their butts, right?" Why would like, you like, be? What is that for? And I'm like, I, I I don't know. And so now we are like on this mission to find a freshly emerged cicada for him to see because he's kind of like, "Okay, I get that it like comes out." Oh, I will also say, I've forgotten the most important part of the story. The reason that we have all these questions is. Our property is now littered with these cicada exoskeletons from that like final molt stage. So we haven't seen a live adult. We've heard them, right? They make that very, the males make that distinct 
loud noise that we often associate with summer, like that heavy, heavy buzzing. So we found lots of these exoskeletons and he's actually collected them from the front yard and they're now in a Tupperware. And he is like very set on finding them all. It's like Pokemon, but only with one species and it's only cicadas. Real life Pokemon, way better. Right? We're down with it. We're we're not, we're not, this is not a a bad thing. (laughs) I love this for you so much. Oh, that's great. Michael, what about you? Have you been, have you noticed any insect exoskeletons? Do you collect them? Do you do real life Pokemon? What's up for you? What have you been nerding about? Well, interestingly enough, I'm not really familiar with cicadas. I'm a West Coast kid, but like I mentioned last season, nerding out about Neon Genesis Evangelion, if anyone's watched that anime from the 90s, the soundtrack just has this cicada sound, and I didn't know what it was until somebody told me like from the East Coast, like, oh yeah, that's cicadas. That's just like what all summer sounds like. And it's very eerie for anyone uh, that knows that show. It, it has just sort of like this ominous sound. So I think I'm maybe a little bit afraid of cicadas now. <laughs> <laughs> but I am nerding out about uh, something that I have some conflicting emotions about, perhaps also about cicadas, but that's billionaires in space. Okay, so we're recording this in July 2021, where we saw Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos both physically take their tourist trips into space. Now, I got called recently to be on CBC to be part of their live coverage of Virgin Galactic taking Branson on a suborbital flight. And here's where the conflicting emotions come in. So, so A, I'm, I'm stoked to be able to give my perspective on space travel and national television, but B, a billionaire doing a flight that NASA astronauts have done hundreds of times back in the 60s, like, who cares? Like, why is this news? So I'm doing research on the flight, and the one thing that I actually am interested in, in is this little fight that Branson and Bezos have, uh, because they don't like each other, is how high you have to go until you're officially in space. So Virgin is going 80 kilometers up, but Blue Origin is going over 100 kilometers, which is where this artificial traditional border of space is. That's called the Kármán line. But, you know, when it comes to where space is, it basically is like once the orbital dynamics of the Earth take over like aerodynamics, so essentially you're a spaceship rather than a plane using air to kind of float, And you can see the curvature of the Earth. I'm pretty sure that you can say that you're in space. So if you're worried about taking a virgin flight that you're not in space, you'll be in space. But the main balancing act that I've been going through recently is through these interviews is that I still have to be enthusiastic for the future of space travel, which is going to allow regular people eventually to go into space, even for a short trip. Regular? (laughs) Well, eventually. How much will it cost? (laughs) Do people with like copious amounts of of money to spend only on a trip to space qualify as regular? Well, I mean, when I say eventually, I mean like maybe not in our lifetime, but you know, like maybe in like 50 to 100 years, we can say people can maybe do this on a vacation. Uh, Yes, regular in, in quotation marks. And you know, right now, being excited for billionaires to do this uh, seems wrong, you know, during a pandemic, and it's exposing all of the inequities of the world. But we live in this capitalist society, which is it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, as a, as a space science communicator, I'm grappling with how to communicate this. And, you know, I'm thinking, could billionaires seeing the Earth from space eventually help in some way? Could regular people you know, when I say quotations, regular people, you know, maybe a hundred years from now, 
see Earth from space? Could that lead to a greater universal look at our planet and as a unique world to protect? I don't know. I mean, I'm full of like this uh, and elation at all of this. And it's something that I need to think deeper on because um, space science communication, which is what I do, is no longer just coming from government space agencies. And, And those are places that are typically neutral, like they're bipartisan groups generally around the world, but private huge corporations now are in the space game, and which means I have to talk about them. So maybe it's an opportunity to also raise questions of humans in space and perhaps not only thinking about what we're doing there, but what we're doing here on Earth. So lots of conflicting emotions on my nerd out. But um, Kaylee, what are you nerding about? Well, I, uh, as you can tell, haven't quite been nerding out about that. I've actually been nerding out about, uh, well, en ce moment, je prends un cours de français. <laughs> so mm. right now I'm taking a French course uh, through Explore Canada. So if you're within oh. one year of school, you can apply to the Explore program. I think you can still apply if you're outside of school. I was right within the one year out of the PhD deadline. And in years past, you would go and do like a French immersion experience. You'd stay with a family. You'd go do five weeks of coursework. In in this version, it's virtual. And it was a great opportunity for me. I work a full-time job and I am specifically in a course in that's in Quebec. And I'm learning about some history of Quebec. I'm, I'm in a, a special group on learning about legends of Quebec, all very religious, or at least the older ones are very religious. But I've been really enjoying it. And I'm learning so much. Uh, for example, I texted this to Silita the other day because I learned that the French term for bat is chauve-souris. Silita, what is the uh, exact definition of chauve-souris? I think, isn't it like flying mouse or, or flying mouse with wings? It's very close. It is bald mouse. Oh, and bald mouse. What I, what I love about that so much is like, one, not mice. Like bats and rodents, <laughs> not related. Very distant. That's a huge misconception, right? Mm-hmm. Not the same. Also, not bald. Like, I actually don't know of any species of bats that are bald. I'm very excited to be corrected. Right. So actually, I want to jump in there real quick because there is at least one species of hairless bat. It's almost completely naked. So it's the um, naked bulldog bat found in certain parts of Southeast Asia, like Malaysia and Borneo. I love this so much. So out there, there is one species of bats that we could call uh, they chauve ne pas souris, <laughs> but for the rest of them, not accurate. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I've been learning about how to conjugate my verbs and recognizing that, holy smokes, I don't even know really how to do that in English. So uh, it's been a great learning experience. I've, I've really been enjoying it. And um, I look forward to maybe getting to an intermediate level at some point. So that's what I've been nerding out about. Well, thank you so much, Sailita, for joining us on our first episode of Season 3. If people want to learn more about you and pre-order the book, uh, which once again is titled Chasing Bats, Tracking Rats, Urban Ecology, Community Science, and How We Share Our Cities, where can people do that? Uh, So you can hit me up on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Silita Guy. I also have this lovely website that I built for myself, uh, www.silitaguy.com. That contains a link where you can pre-order my book. But uh, while you can go to Amazon or you can go to Indigo or you can go directly to Anik to order it, please support your local bookstore. Find a local bookstore. Be like Kaylee. Ask them to order that book in for you. And, you know, give your... Give your local folks some business too. 
Yeah, Bezos doesn't need the money. He's going to space. Yeah, exactly. That's the one thing I took from your nerd out. No more Amazon. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sylita, for being here. This was so much fun. I learned so much about bats. Thank you for having uh, having me here and letting me sp- just spew, spew facts about bats. Our absolute pleasure. And we hope that you, if you're listening, had a great time, learned a lot about bats too. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYBR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until we meet again, keep your eyes on the skies to spot your local bat friends. Bye.